You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. New things. What's the point of saying new things, I once said to the man I had just started seeing when he said there was no point writing about him because he was just another mediocre white man and the Western canon already had that covered. What is there to say about the world that hasn't already been? More to the point, who gives a shit? 3,000 years of standing at the lakeside mourning the fall of the Byzantine Empire. I'm as bored of it as anyone, and Shakespeare too. We should all move to the country and fuck each other's brains out. Still, there are better things to be than original. So maybe I can say jazz apothecary or ham pantyliner, but it gives me no pleasure to mean so little and get so far away with it. What is there to say about love that hasn't already been? 3,000 years of grass and wind. We lay on the banks of the field behind your house. Oh, there is nothing to do in this life. The world describes itself again. Black curtains on the windows pinned up with needles. All across the field, small lights falling like snow on a virgin roller coaster. In trees, I am still crazy. I can barely look at you. I can barely say the words out loud. I could be dead so many years ago. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. The poet you heard reading at the top of the show was Hira Lindsay Bird, a poet from New Zealand. Her debut poetry collection, called Hera Lindsay Bird, was published in July 2016 by Victoria University Press and quickly sold out its first print run. A UK edition is published this month, which is to say November 2017, just in time for Christmas. Consulting Wikipedia, I read Bird was born and raised in Thames on the North Island of New Zealand. She attended Victoria University of Wellington, but wrote the majority of her first book while living in Dunedin. Things started to take off when her poem, Keats is Dead, So Fuck Me From Behind, was published on the spin-off website in July of last year, at which point it went viral. She and her work have since been profiled in Vice, ID and The Guardian. The New Zealand Listener magazine called her debut an unabashedly flamboyant collection, and Sunday magazine said it was fearless, referencing its confessional nature, although it's also very funny and very smart. In August, when Bird was in Edinburgh to take part in the Edinburgh International Book Festival, she found time to come down to the Scottish Poetry Library, where she recorded the podcast you're about to hear. She was funny and charming, and we're very grateful she was able to visit. Before we kick things off, please do bear in mind this is an adult podcast with the occasional word or two of adult language, so if you're offended by expletives, or you're listening to this while doing the ironing and your kids in the room, well, I did warn you. I'll just start by asking, so is this your first time in Scotland? It's my first time in the UK at all. And how are you finding it? I love Scotland. It's great, yeah. The weather's not putting me off. No, I kind of like this weather actually. I've got like, Wellington weather is very similar to this. Right. So it kind of, as soon as I got off the plane, I was like, oh yeah, this feels, this feels kind of a little bit like home. And actually I used to live in Dunedin, which is... Um, has this kind of weird, like, single white female thing with Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) They've, like, they've named all of the streets. So I used to live on George Street, and there's a Princess Street, Mm. and, um, you know, they've named all of the streets the same, and every single um, bar is named after uh, Robert Burns and stuff, so... So when when did you start writing poetry? What was your first experiences with it? 
Well, I, I wrote poetry since I was a kid because um, I don't know what the education system's like over here, but in, in New Zealand, when I was growing up, I kind of grew up in this really hippie place called the Coromandel where, um, I don't know, everyone kind of either, yeah, they kind of all moved there to sell giant wooden butterflies on the outside of people's houses and drink kind of herbal teas and stuff, but it meant that my, my family were really into the arts and things, and, um, and also our school system, like we did heaps of poetry units and stuff so I, I, I was kind of writing poetry since I was like six or seven or something and then I kind of dropped off when I got a bit older but um, yeah my introduction to it was very young. What revived your interest in it? Doing a couple of courses at university I met this um, because in these I don't know what it's like and what you kind of you, you probably do all of the Scottish poets in your high school but we just did Wilf, like just hours and hours and hours of Wilfred Owen in high school and I just like yeah, I don't know, war poetry is just not my... It's not your bag. Not my bag. And so it wasn't until I kind of was in my early 20s and I um, did a course run by one of the recent graduates from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. They come over every year and do a workshop in Wellington. Um, and she showed me some kind of contemporary US poets who I really love. And, that, and they were just kind of people that I hadn't... Like, I didn't know that poetry could sound like that. And that was what kind of brought me back again, I think. To address your new collection which is named after yourself as well. Um, the first poem in the book is Write a Book. Is that your manifesto? No, I just kind of wanted to... I was thinking about doing like a little bit of an introduction for it and it just kind of came out as poetry. But I also, maybe maybe stupidly, I like I kind of wanted to preempt some of the criticisms of my book that I knew that I would get, so I just thought I'd be sneaky and chuck them in there on the first page. I wanted to kind of frame it in a way as well like for me like what I wanted to do with that poem is kind of to say that it wasn't all like the one of the things that people say about my work is it's all kind of a bit sarcastic and ironic and I don't for me it's not like that like for me there is like a real sentimentality in it and you know like I do like genuinely you know there's a lot of like quite emotional poems in there for me and so I kind of wanted to foreground that too so people didn't just I don't know, I didn't just talk about it as like a ironic millennial collection of hipster poetry or something, although I think that I've, I don't know how successful that was. But. I like the, um, the line, the official theme of all my poems is you get in love and then you die. Gets to the point, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well there's only like, there's, there's not that many themes in poetry, are there? Uh, I don't know, maybe we should have an audit maybe. of themes in poetry. Yeah. Um, just file things under sex or death. They're very popular. Yeah. <laughs> they get around. Um, would it be possible to hear you read, write a book? Write a book. To be 14 and wet yourself extravagantly at a supermarket checkout as you run cascades down your black lace stocking and onto the linoleum is to comprehend what it means to be a poet. To stand in the tepid underhalo of your own self-making and want to die far away in a field of wild orchids is a backward sentimentality like a Christmas card with a robin scratched out. Well, it was Oscar Wilde who said sentimentality is the desire to have the luxury of an emotion without paying for it, like when I masturbate and think of nuns yet never go to church at Christmas. Now I have a master's degree in poetry and no longer wet myself, but I still have to die in antiquated flowers. Does this make me sentimental? Well, who's to judge? You can get away with anything in a poem as long as you say, my tit's in it. But it's a false courage to be so modestly endowed and have nothing meaningful to say. 
You might think this book is ironic, but to me it is deeply sentimental. Like, if you slit your wrists while winking, does that make it a joke? To be alive is the greatest sentimentality there is, and I live to be sentimental, and I love to be alive, always weeping at the end of a movie over the frosted carriages of yesteryear. I wrote this book, and it is sentimental, because I don't have a right-sized reaction to the world. To write a book is not a right-sized reaction. To put all your bad thoughts on paper and make someone else pay for them. My friend says it's bad poetry to write a book, and I agree with her. I agree with her in principle, but I wrote a book anyway and I named it after myself. My name is Hera Lindsay Burge. This book is called Hera Lindsay Burge. I wrote it and I mean at least 75% of it, and if that's not sentimental, well, one day I'm going to have to pay for it. Sentimentality generally has a bad reputation. I'm not sure it's the sort of thing people, who, I imagine, who run courses recommend authors try and avoid. Um, mm. So are you trying to rehabilitate sen- sentimentality? Or do you have that, when you say sentimentality, you're meaning something different from what people who don't like sen- sentimentality think it means? Yeah, maybe I'm working with a different functioning definition. But to me, like, um, if your poetry isn't kind of risking... You know, like I think you have to walk to the edge of sentimentality because if you just play it like if you just play it safe and you're just kind of writing kind of very elegant poems about um, you know the lovely birds outside your window and kind of throwing in a couple of uh, I don't know references to Galileo or whatever, but you're not ris- you're not you're not willing to like talk about a sunset. Then I don't know what are you doing like. To me, we're doing poetry courses. I always got the feeling like the worst thing in the world you could do was say, I love you, or like mention a sunset or mention soul. And because I'm kind of a little bit contrary, I kind of want, I thought about writing this book and I thought, well, I want to put as much of that there in as possible and I want to make it work. Like, Mm. I want to take the things that are a little bit too corny to say um, or the kind of like verging on bad taste and kind of rehabilitate them somehow. Do you think that's why your poetry is connected with, with people? Um, because you've, you've risked that sentimentality and through that you've, there's, been, there's something that people may have felt that contemporary poetry is missing out on. I don't want to speak for other people or kind of say what other people's reaction to my work has been because it's kind of, you know, I don't always know. But um, for me, like as a reader, what I really enjoy reading is when you read someone's work and they give you a real insight into their inner life like to me that's the most exciting thing about writing like at those moments where someone says something that you've never heard anyone say out loud before but you totally kind of recognize as being true or like kind of belonging to you in some way and I think that poetry has to like for me at least poetry has to have some kind of element of that and it's kind of a it's a funny thing because I know that that also you know writing about yourself you know I get there's that that weird thing where you know, it's kind of talked about as a kind of narcissism or whatever. And that's probably true in some ways, but also, that, like, you could, you could say that Frank O'Hara's poetry is narcissistic, for instance, because it's all about himself and his friends and these kind of in-jokes and all of his tragic love affairs. But to me, it's kind of generous as well, because you get this just kind of amazing insight into someone else's life. Yeah, I know. I mean, sometimes, you know, with something like, you know, that poem about sharing a Coke with you or that? Yeah, that's it, one of my favourites. It's so personal it becomes bigger, if you see what I mean. If you go so far into yourself, I guess you come out the other side. And it's, I guess that's that, uns- that un- not filtering it and, and being uncensored gives you 
you respond to the openness, I guess, and so the details are irrelevant. It's the emotion and the openness that you, you come to, I think, with Frank O'Hara, certainly, for myself. And I think a lot of people don't. Like, I think the other, like, the thing that people say to me why they like my book is there's also, like, heaps of love poetry in there, and that's kind of a bit of a naff thing to mm. do these days. Like, you, you, when I was at school, I really got the feeling that you had to really earn the right to write a love poem, but... I don't know, it's always been like my favourite genre of poetry and when I was thinking about writing this book for years I was kind of like, oh well I better steer away from that, we'll write like a like a kind of a beautiful kind of austere kind of book and you know it'll be sophisticated and clean and then I just kind of had this revelation after I finished my email that no one really well I didn't want to read that book mm. and so I kind of thought about the book that I really wanted to have as a reader and then I try to that's what I try to write I, I guess the problem people maybe have with love is that it has been just you know you can weigh it by the ton couldn't you number, <laughs> number of love poems and so it's really hard to make it your own or, or individual so, so how did you handle that poem once you said screw it I'm going to take the plunge love poems are a little bit they're kind of a funny thing anyway like my my thing I think about them is it's like it's like writing a really dirty like letter to someone on the back of the postcard hoping that the postman will read it instead of the recipient. <laughs> I used to be a postman, so I can confirm that happened. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's like this really deeply personal thing because obviously you're doing it in a public forum and there's elements of performativity to it. And, you know, a lot of my love poems actually have been, like they've been so kind of reworked over time that I kind of can't remember the original person that they're for anymore. Like but some of the really, really early ones, you know, there'll be a couple of different people in there as I've revised over the years. But I really like the the, the poets that I first met when I kind of started reading the, that US contemporary poetry that I was talking about, people like Mark Leidner um, and Dorothy Alasky, they kind of wrote these love poems that really kind of changed my mind and I was like oh this is how you write like a good contemporary mm. love poem that's kind of you know has a bit of darkness and a bit of humour to it but it's kind of like rooted in the personal as well. Can we hear one of your love poems? I'll read you, should I read you the most sappy one? Please. <laughs> that's what I was going to ask for. <laughs> alright, alright this one is called Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. If there is a designated point at which return becomes of no return, so far as how far I am always beyond it. We sit in the rain of your hangover and I tell you the story about my dead aunt who spent her 16th year digging a giant hole in the field behind her house and never said why. Anna, I love you. I love you in the jittering shade of a historic windmill. I love you standing in the water wearing the river like an invisible pair of shoes. I love you here at the beginning of your only life and almost gone, getting high on your porch, light drifting between us like ghost sequins. I've always never felt this way about anyone, but the way in which I've never felt about you is a way of never feeling so new it's somehow old, like a cave painting of a fax machine or falling asleep in the attic of a spaceship. You make me want to think of you in a sentence with me in it. You make me want to find a collapsed mineshaft I can call your name in while searching for you. You make me want to tell you what you make me want, but what can I even say to you, riding a desk chair through the afternoon like a patron saint of remaindered office furniture? I don't know what it means to walk each night into a field alone and dig until you are standing in a hole so deep you cannot be seen above ground. 
I don't know what it means to fall asleep on your porch and wake with the illustrated guide to Planet of the Apes open in my hands. I don't really know what it means to wait each morning and love you and say nothing as if nothing were honesty's default or maybe just a way for me to avoid the stupid things I need to tell you like looking at you is like looking at a beautiful person far away through a telescope that makes you seem the size you almost are which is something I mean but don't understand like the new hieroglyphics of songbirds or how the world in which I'm saying this to you is already receding. That looking at you is like looking backwards out the window of a slow-moving helicopter into the 19th century cornfield of your face, which my historical inaccuracy has suddenly emptied of birds. You make my life feel the size of itself. You make my life a burning craft on some distant and unintended hillside. Anna, you are the pale green arm of the Statue of Liberty, reaching up through miles of sand. So, we've talked about love. Can we talk about hate? Yeah. <laughs> Much the same as um, sentimentality, hate has a bad reputation, but your poem, Hate, I think it makes a pretty good argument for coming to some sort of accommodation with hate. Um, what was on your mind when you were, you were writing that poem? Oh, I don't know. Hating things is one of the great joys in life, mm. don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> I kind of feel like you're not really allowed to hate things anymore. You know, everyone... If you say you hate something online, everyone's like, well, you know, everyone has their own individual tastes, things like that. And I didn't want, like, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of love poetry in here as well, but most of the writers I like have a little bit of a, a little bit of a, um, a meanness to them yeah. too. It's like anything, you, you can be good at something or bad at something, and you can be a, a good hater in the sense <laughs> that you pick your subjects well and you articulate with passion and um, taste, I guess, as well. And the sort of blanket anti-hate feeling, I think, um, ignores the fact that there's a lot of things in the world that are worth your hate, from, from large to small, and you, the different, what we should think is not, um, let's not hate, we should think, let's hate wisely. Yeah, hate's, hate's a really, like, generative and, like, you know, powerful thing, like, you know, it's kind of funny now, people talking, you know, we've got all the discussion in the news about um, all of the you know, all of the alt-right people, or, or as we like to call them, Nazis in America. And, you know, there's lots of people kind of on my Facebook feed being like, well, if we hate the Nazis, aren't we the same as the Nazis? And it's just kind of, it's just mad to me. Like, I I just think we need a little bit more hate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, for, certainly for those guys, yeah. you know, they're complete morons. Um, and they certainly wouldn't um, step back from that, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's like... I mean, if you want to talk about Nazis, let's talk about World War Two. That wasn't going to be won by extending arms full of love towards them, was it? So, but even you know, that's like a like a sorry, a, a big version. That's a grand righteous hate, isn't yeah. it? But I like my small petty hates too. Yeah. Part of the reason I wrote it is just because I, you know, I just think that like I just wanted to be as honest as possible in my book, and I think that if you just write a book full of love poems and you kind of ignore <laughs> ignore the other part of your life, where you just come home and you just like need to find the person that you're with and be like oh listen I just I just have to like you know Maria was being such a fucking cunt today you know <laughs> like then that's kind of disingenuous too well I mean it's part of the human experience yeah. and if you don't write about it then it's a whole area that people aren't <laughs> talking you're, you're seeding hate to the haters you know I think it's it's actually you know we're talking about an audit of of poetical subjects, I think that should be on the list. And I think it's a legitimate um, legitimate feeling to have. I mean, 
any feeling one has has to be legitimate because it's part of being human, isn't it? Yeah. Can we hear hate? Hate. Some people are meant to be forgiven and others are meant to be hated forever. I don't think it's right to hate people. It's just that I don't care to wake each day in a snakeskin negligee and light myself on fire with such ethical behaviours. Once I tried to give hate up, but I was born to feel a great pettiness, to lie face down in my Catholic schoolgirl outfit and pound the cobblestones of the Royal Albert Hall. Hate is an old-fashioned spirituality, to know that pain will take care of itself. It's a lean justice that doesn't serve anyone, only itself like a long retired butler. Well, I don't like life without a modicum of hate. This was once a righteous indignation, but now it's a self-pleasuring exercise. A literary revenge is the most humiliating of all punishments, to be stretched on the racks of the poetry-industrial complex. Hate only hurts the hater, says conventional wisdom, but conventional wisdom's dead and I am still alive. If this hurts, it hurts like self-inflicted arse slaps. Oh, tell me I'm a bad girl with a stunted empathy complex. Some people are meant to hate forever, and other people are meant to have appropriate reactions. Some people believe in forgiveness, and other people believe in dwelling on things. Hate is a rare emotion because nobody dares feel it. Nobody, at least not by name. Everyone thinks their hate is just wrong behaviour objections. But there are wrong behaviour objections and then there are wrong behaviour objections. Hate is a white crepe box with voluminous spiked ruffles. It's a friendly push off a Tuscan cliff. Hate is a private joke with only one punchline or a statue in the courtyard with a bad attitude. To hate is to glory in bygone hurts, like an antique cannon you never have to load. My hate is a genial hate with a modern vintage aesthetic, like clocking someone with a non-stick frying pan. As a child, my dance instructor once told me to stop rolling my eyes. I was very petulant and accustomed to lavish praise. I'm not rolling my eyes, I said, I'm looking at the ceiling. And I was, with modern jazz content. Hate is an emotional aristocracy fallen on hard times. It's like eating nothing off a solid gold plate. To hate is a cruel vintage festivity, like a handmade piñata filled with bees. Hate is a luxurious futility, like a velvet birdbath. Someone wise once said that, and that person was me. And if you don't like it, well, buy me a drink and you can finish the poem. Once I tried to understand my enemy, but some people it is less eye-rolling not to understand. To hate is a bad behaviour, but I have to feel it anyway. The more they want me less to hate them, the more I smile like a sickle coming down and are the bad, bad grass. I tell my hate to my girlfriend and she laughs. She laughs and laughs and laughs. She laughs until she cries at the ungenerous things I say, and then looks kind of worried. So, you called your debut collection after yourself? Yes. Now that's not unusual in music, bands do it all the time, but I guess it's a bit different. Eponymously titled collections and poetry is quite unusual, isn't it? It is, and that's kind of why I wanted to do it, because I was being, you know, I was being a bit attention-seeking. <laughs> but I also, like, I, like I grew up with, um, 
all of the you know the great 90s pop stars like um, Janet Jackson and Britney and people like that who all named their first album after themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I wanted to like have a little bit of a pop star homage in there. And also the other thing is, um, I was thinking about the collection titles of some of my favourite books when I was coming to title this. And it's funny because all of the books on my shelves will be things like um, Frank O'Hara or Walt Whitman. But, but of course, now you don't really get the individual books, you get the whole collection. So it's just kind of like, you know, you'll have a Frank O'Hara book called Frank O'Hara or Walt Whitman by Walt Whitman. And I just, and, and so that was kind of part of it as well. Like, well, the other reason that I wanted to call it after myself is I wanted to, we have this kind of funny thing. I don't know if you have this over here, but like, um, the idea that if you write a book of poetry that's kind of a bit confessional or whatever, people are really careful about talking about the poems as if they're actually about you. you know, like in my workshop classes, one of the things that people would do, they'd say, now the character inside the poem, even if it was absolutely blindingly obvious to everyone in the room that it was actually about the person and their kind of failing marriage or whatever. Um, and I just kind of wanted to just avoid that whole situation, so I thought, well, if I call my book Carol and Bird, it's kind of like a permission for people to read it as a personal collection, and I'm quite, like, you know, that is a personal collection, so I was quite happy for people to do that, and I just wanted to put that up front. I'm glad you broached this subject, because as someone who does podcasts on a monthly basis, I find I have to do a very delicate dance yeah. around these kind of things, so there'll be a poem which under no circumstances could be mistaken for anything else. I mean, it's so, the situation being described is so unusual, it can only have been yeah. the person. And you have to say, the voice in the poem is, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's completely disingenuous, but, you know, you have to do it because you, you have a horrible feeling you're going to offend somebody mortally if you say, that was you in the poem, wasn't it? So, yeah. Thank you. Maybe this will start a trend. Yeah, everyone will just call your books after themselves and it'll be a lot easier to shelve. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about Keats is Dead, so fuck me from behind. So that went viral, didn't it? That suddenly started appearing on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. What was that like to have something you'd written and suddenly, you know, people are writing articles about another side of the world? Um, Oh, it's really weird actually. And I, I kind of, like to me it's kind of... Like you actually, like people say that about that poem that it went viral, whatever that means, but like mm. you don't actually, you kind of don't really see that because all of those shares are kind of invisible or they're, or they're kind of made up by your mother or, mm. or they've become like a um, myth or something. So I'm not really sure how many people around the world actually did read it, um, but like it, they certainly did. Um, there were a couple of articles in The Guardian that had kind of referenced that poem and then, and then, oh boy, the Guardian comment section over here is brutal, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and that linked to that poem, so then I got a lot of feedback about it. Mainly I feel like a lot of people really kind of misunderstood what I meant by that, but, you know, death of the author or whatever, you just have to let it go. I read the, you, you did a Facebook post, I've, I've been doing some research, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you said it was a carpe diem Yeah, poem. it is a carpe diem poem. Because, like, I, you know, it does, I'm, I'm not going to, pretend that it doesn't have kind of a lot of um, famous old white poets dying in it but but they're also poets that I really love Mm. and people kind of read that poem and kind of thought it was like an attack on Keats and you know attacking Keats is just the the worst thing (laughs) that you can do in in a poetry you know kind of why I wanted to do it anyway because I thought it was a little bit funny but you know like also I do really love all of those poets and and to me that was though the death that like all of those that kind of series of horrific fake deaths in that poem is not really the heart of the poem to me but that's kind of what people took away from it mm-hmm. like to me that's kind of it's like a carpe diem love poem 
Keats is dead, so fuck me from behind. Keats is dead, so fuck me from behind. Slowly and with carnal purpose, some black midwinter afternoon while all the children are walking home from school. Peel my stockings down with your teeth. Coleridge is dead, in order too, of laughing in an overcoach. Shelley died at sea and his heart wouldn't burn, and Wordsworth, they never found his body. His widow mad with grief, hammering nails into an empty meadow. Byron, Whitman, our dog crushed by a garage door. Finger me slowly in the snowscape of your childhood, our dead floating just below the surface of the earth. Bend me over like a substitute teacher and pump me full of shivering arrows. Oh, emotional vulnerability. Bosnian folk song, birds in the chimney, tell me what you love when you think I'm not listening. Wallace Stevens' mother is calling him in for dinner, but he's not coming. He's dead too. He died 60 years ago. Nobody cared at his funeral. Life is real and the days burn off like leopard print. Nobody, not even the dead, can tell me what to do. Eat my pussy from behind. Bill Manhire's not getting any younger. And that's that for another episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. Before we sign off, some thank yous. Thank you, Lindsay Herobard. For allowing us to interview. Her new book, also called Hero Lindsay Bird, is published in the UK on the 30th of November and is an essential read. Thank you, dear listener, for taking 30 minutes out of your time to enjoy the podcast. And thank you, Will Campbell, whose music plays at the start and at the end of the show. So uh, we'll have another podcast in about a month's time. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with what the SPL is up to, we have our own website www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk We have all the social media platforms you'd expect a modern organisation to have so we do Twitter at By Leaves We Live we have an Instagram account I think that's SPL Scotland and that's also the name to look for us on Facebook and it only remains for me to say uh, that we will be back again next month for the final podcast of 2017 and uh, look forward to seeing you then, so to speak. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook. <laughs>